Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Hey, I just noticed that this is episode 46 of this podcast and chapter 23 of this novel. Now, anybody who knows me knows I am not a numbers gal, but Even I picked up on the fact that 23 is half of 46. So for all you folks who are into stuff like Pi Day, which I am into only because, as I have said before, I love Pi, and all those dates that are like palindromes and stuff, this is my gift to you. I'm sure somebody can find some significance in it. Now, the COVID numbers in BC are still way too high. Frankly, any number of cases is too high as far as I'm concerned, but certainly 500 to 600 new cases each day is not cool. But Dr. Bonnie determined that those cases are not stemming from outdoor activities, so she has relaxed the restrictions on outdoor gatherings. We can have a bubble of up to 10 people, and we can gather outside. We have determined that in our house, if we have one other couple over, they can sit on the deck over by the barbecue, and we can sit by the door, and that's two meters apart. So this means we can have the kids over. It has been months since we were able to have a proper visit with them or with other sets of friends, so it feels like a rare treat to have had them over the other day. I still can't hug them, but at least we can visit for a lengthy time uh, without having a computer screen between us. Vaccines are making the rounds, but it will be a while before we're vaccinated because we're in a low-risk group, for which I am grateful. No complaints. I think we will, all of us, still need to continue to be careful even once everyone has been vaccinated. Um, With all the things I've heard about the long-term effects of this virus, which are varied and ghastly, I'm not at all interested in taking the risk. Buddy of mine told me the other day that his brother had COVID, which damaged his nervous system. And now there are days when he can't walk or do other activities because of numbness throughout his body. You know, why would I risk it? So I will take what I can get and be happy to be able to see my kids in person in the safe outdoors. The ones who live here in town anyway... I will continue to miss the kid who doesn't live in town. And and my out-of-town friends. I miss going to MissCon and Creative Inc. And going on writing retreats. And those things will happen again. Just like someday I will be able to see a play in a theater again. And make music with my bands. For now, I will continue to be patient. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 23 A Cry, A Clang of Steel Kier's training instinctively kicked in. She bent her knees in a defensive stance and turned her head back and forth to analyze the movements of the ghostly beings. One step from each apparition brought the circle closer. You are ours. You will not escape. "'Just try and stop me,' she snarled. She was a caged animal, desperate, and she'd go down fighting. 
Her sword flashed as she drew it. Whirling around, Kier pointed it at each of them. Round and round it goes, where it stops. Looking wildly about her, she recognized a new emotion from them. They had no faces that she could see, but their attitudes and posture no longer suggested offense, but confusion. One figure's head was turned as if looking at her sideways. Another had raised its hands. Kier sensed an advantage and readied for the attack. No, wait. A hand was held up in warning. She arrested the movement, but did not relax her stance. That sword, the being said, that sword should never be drawn against us. Kier sensed the horror in the voice. She sneered at it. Then back off and let me pass. The figures seemed to look around at each other. Clearly, this was highly irregular. They did not want to let her go, but her sword was causing them some imbalance. Put it away! Again, turbulence. More trepidation than threat. I will not. How much of a fool do you think I am? Kier showed the tip to the figure directly in the path to the entrance. It did not cower, but swayed uncertainly, and that was all Kier required. She charged. The figure vanished before her. She darted through the opening and dashed toward the steps. At the top, she risked a glance back to see them approaching again, but they dared not get too near while she held that weapon in both hands. She had no desire to make a leisurely departure, and thanked whatever gods might pay attention that the torch in the foyer still provided light for her. She fetched Trigg from inside the stable and flung saddle and bags across his poor back, all the while feeling that the beings were counting down. They would most certainly be on her heels if she took too long. She passed a hand over the entrance, and a crack appeared between the two doors. She pulled on the handle, she flung the door wide and burst out into the morning sunshine. Sounds of a battle came from beyond the stone pillars, and a hand was clamped over her mouth. Neither had coppers to spare, so they played for pebbles. Skimnoddle sat, cross-legged, opposite his opponent. Aha! My roll of thirteen hundred points wins over your seven hundred. I'll just take these two somewhat jagged stones into my keeping. He held the two pebbles between his forefingers and thumbs, waving them enticingly in front of his opponent's eyes. Shall we each bet two this time? I have these nice roundish ones that can be yours, my good fellow, should your total score this roll be greater than my own. Harley grinned. All right, hotshot, I'll see your two roundish ones and raise you another two with pointy bits. He lay on his side, propped up on one elbow. The stakes now set out between them. The rolling began again. Now, you were saying that your chief is new, Skimnoddle said, picking up the discussion where they'd left off. Harley glanced up at him with a glint in his eye. I know your game, mister. You're trying to throw me off my roll. He rolled three threes and picked up the other two dice to try adding to his three hundred points. Yes, he's new. We picked him up only a couple of months ago or so. Ronav was killed, so Hunter was made chief. He rolled a check, so picked up all five dice and rolled again. Did you hold a secret ballot to decide? How many men were willing to stand for the position? The halfling asked, eyes wide with eagerness. What are you talking about? Nah, he was appointed by the spectre. The spectre? Skimnoddle asked. Yeah, I'm sure he has a real name. That's just what the men all call him because he appears and disappears so suddenly, you know? And he's ghostly pale and all dressed in black. I'm going to stop on 950. Don't want to risk another roll. See if you can beat that. 
He scooped up the dice and laid them in front of Skimnoddle and marked his score on the dirt scoreboard. Skimnoddle looked doubtful. Fascinating. What if you do not approve of the chief he appoints? Will this specter entertain any expressions of disapproval? Any suggestions for an alternate choice? He shook the dice in both little hands. Entertain? Oh, sure, he'll entertain the rest of the group by disemboweling the one who spoke out against the choice, Harley answered, shaking his head. Not that I've ever seen it happen. No, you just don't question what he says, trust me. Skimnoddle tossed the dice for a first roll total of a mere fifty. He picked up all but the five to re-roll. Accepted. So how is Chief Hunter faring compared to your previous commander? What, Ronav? <laughs> Harley snorted. He's infinitely better than Ronav. All Ronav was okay, but his ambitions were... Well, you could say he'd aimed a little higher than he could clearly see. I wasn't sure of Hunter at first, but he seems to have come around. It must be frustrating to work for someone who keeps changing his mind, but Hunter and the Spectre seem to have come to an understanding. Were you going to roll or what? Ah, yes, of course. Skimnoddle let the dice loose. You had me captivated with your story, good man. That friend of yours, the woman? Harley asked. Ah, the lovely Kier. Skimnoddle sighed rapturously, a hand on his heart. Harley nodded in agreement. She's an interesting one, all right. Interesting? The halfling stared at the other man as if he'd just said Kier was ugly as a sea hag. She is my joy, my inspiration, the render of my heart. He lowered his eyes. Harley's right eyebrow went up. By the gods, man, are you going to be all right? He asked mildly. I only meant she's a tough one to figure out. How so? Well... When I brought her up to talk to the chief, she seemed really sure of herself. Confident, yeah? Then Hunter said whatever it was he had to say, and she went all pale. He shook his head again, this time in disbelief. It was odd, I tell you. Then Misty did her thing, and your friend flopped to the ground. A few days later, Hunter tells us he's just found out she's the one who gave Lady Al on this Malison thing. You've heard about that. What do you think of it? Skimnoddle picked up all five dice and shook again. The evidence is damning, to be sure. I find myself believing it, yet I have no wish to. Aye, that's what I think, too. Now what about this misty woman? Skimnoddle ventured. Have you any idea as to whether they are collaborators? Harley scoffed. Misty and Juggler are, that's a fact. They think each other's thoughts for them. You misunderstand me, Skimnoddle said. It occurs to me that perhaps Misty and her brother are working in conjunction with Kier. What do you say to that? Harley wrinkled his nose. I doubt it. I really do. Those two work for nobody but themselves. Even when they did errands for Ronav, they tied it up with their own business. I swear this working for Hunter and the Spectre is really to cover something of their own. Look, are you bored of this game? I keep having to remind you to roll. Skimnoddle bowed in his seated position. I am most humbly sorry, my dear fellow. He let the dice go and rolled an automatic 5,000 points. Harley pushed himself up to sitting. That's it, he cried with mock disgust. You can have the damn pebbles. The dice are probably loaded anyway, aren't they? I'm off to the bushes for a visit with nature. Hey, in fact, and he grabbed his whole pile of stones as he rose to standing, have them all, you lucky bastard. You'd probably take them while I'm gone, wouldn't you? Skimnoddle blustered out his defense as the agreeable fellow disappeared into the trees. 
Though he could not believe his luck, Skimnoddle the thief did not hesitate an instant. While sitting in their camp, he had appraised the area with his expert eye, waiting patiently for the right opportunity. He had two or three ideas where Misty might have hidden her stash, but leaned toward the most obvious one. Hers was the only bedroll packed away onto her horse. In a flash, he had removed it and flown with it over to his own camp. Swift and nimble hands found the satisfying lump they sought, clapped gleefully, and retrieved the sack. He concealed it in yet another thief's hiding place among his own belongings and returned the bedroll to its original position. When Harley returned, the halfling was seated cross-legged exactly where Harley had left him, juggling the dice. Harley's face lit up in amusement. Skimnoddle caught the dice expertly and, indicating the pile of stones in front of him, threw Harley an innocent, beaming smile. As if a thought had just occurred to him, he cocked his head to one side. "'Does this mean I win?' Harley nearly crumpled with laughter. Janik's battle-axe leapt into his hand and promptly sliced straight through his attacker's sword. The man gaped, and Janik let out a gleeful laugh at the effectiveness of his oil of unbreaking. As his opponent scrambled to draw a dagger, Janik amputated his arm. The severed limb swooped into the face of a neighbor, whose shriek echoed through the stone pillars and around the clearing. Soon all manner of weapons arced and sliced in the morning sunlight. Fennel's bow at close range expeditiously devastated three of Frederick's men before the elf took a clout in the back with a mace, sending him sprawling. Derry's sword at first lashed against Frederick, but the former captain of the shale guard shook his head. Something in his pleading eyes called to Derry, and the younger man found himself listening. He straightened his body out of the ready position, and Frederick Halen's shoulders dropped as he breathed a sigh. The next thing they knew, they had taken up their weapons against a common enemy. Derry fought Kep, and Frederick faced down his own man. Hugh's eyes glittered as he gripped his falchion. I've been waiting to take you down since you walked in the door. Frederick stepped forward, sword in hand. Come on, then. Janik had not been challenged by a two-weaponed man in many an age. It was a struggle from the start. Juggler's two swords whirled like hummingbird wings. Janik could barely see them with only one eye. The dwarf was all too aware of how easily he might be taken out. Using his battle-axe like a quarterstaff, Janik blocked and parried the skilled swordsman's moves, but had no opportunity to attempt an attack. At this rate, he would tire before he dealt a single blow— the dwarf's armor turned a direct hit to his chest, but he staggered backward. Reaching up with his axe, he fended off the slice from Juggler's right-handed blade. But the left one swiftly switched direction and caught the sturdy dwarf on the right upper arm. Liquid warmth oozed out and down to his elbow. Kep deftly flicked his rapier and cut a slit in Derry's cheek. The captain answered with a grand sweep from his bastard sword that knocked his opponent out of line, but Kep employed a balletic hop and instantly recovered. Derry took the tip of Kep's rapier just above his left wrist. Crying out, Derry raised his weapon and flung himself at his foe, determined not to allow Frederick's band of rogues to bring about the failure of his mission. Frederick's sword whipped from side to side, horizontally, overhead. Each connection with Hugh's falchion sent jarring shivers up his arms. Hugh hacked at him. Frederick never broke eye contact with the other man. Jaskellen never broke eye contact with the other mage. Tall, willowy, beautiful in a deadly way. 
She had no visible energy cell and an overconfident gleam in her eye, Jaskelin's split-second assessment told him. Those could work in his favor. On the other hand, he had felt what she had tried to do to the plant at the gate. Elimination was not a spell for a dabbling mage. This one possessed high skill. What else can she do if she can do that? He clung to the fact that the spell had failed. That was either because she had not mastered it, or merely that the plant was stronger. Sometimes the failure of a spell as strong as an elimination could absorb and carry off some of the magic user's source energy, dissolving it. He could not count on that having occurred. If ever Jaskela needed to trust himself, this was the time. His own energy cell, his staff, held close in front. He focused, centered, and summoned his power from its source. Hand flung out, he cast. She smiled. She had time to smile, he moaned. A brush of her hand diverted his spell and sent it off into the trees. A nearby aspen shriveled. Jaskelin's black face went positively wan. I'm doomed. The mountain plateau had never seen this much activity. The plant life shuddered with distaste. Within the throng of battle, nobody observed that the door of the Indian caves was open. Sword in one hand, Trigg's bridle in the other, Kier struggled against the hands that restrained her. A soothing voice in her ear whispered, "'Shh, hush, it's all right!' And the fragrance of lilacs and rosemary told her whose voice it was. She closed her eyes in relief and turned to droop into the guardian's arms, breathing deeply. She felt instant calm, the weariness and fear of the past two days washing away as if by a cool mountain stream. "'There, it's all right,' he whispered, hand no longer over her mouth, but fully embracing her. "'You've had an awful fright, I can tell. But it's over now. I'm here.' "'What's going on? Who's fighting?' "'All those silly, childish people you used to travel with.' The low whisper encouraged her to let go, find tranquility with him. "'Listen to them. Arguing, fighting, never solving anything. Such a waste of time.' Kier felt his head turn back and forth. "'You've been through so much. Haven't you had enough? Is everything you've been through worth all this? Did I not warn you that you were in danger?' "'What are you talking about?' she asked, drawing her head unwillingly away from its resting place on his chest. The ink-black eyes were pools of compassion. They don't know you're here, you know. They think you deserted them. They've just as much deserted you.' But the white face was bright with eagerness. Come away with me and leave all this madness behind. Away? Where? To my home, of course. Let us go away, we two. They don't need you here, he said. She began to think he might be right. Besides, he went on, boyish excitement in his tone, there is someone at home who wants to meet you. Kier gave him a quizzical look. She's been waiting a long time to see you again. Don't you think you ought not to keep her waiting any longer? Who? I don't know who you mean. She peered up at him. Oh, you must hazard a guess. I don't like riddles. The guardian clasped the hand that had released Trigg's bridle. No riddles, no strings. You owe me nothing. I am your guardian and I am here to help you. Why don't you come and meet her? "'Who?' Kier demanded. "'Your mother.' Kier looked at him, dazed. 
"'Della?' she asked stupidly. "'No, dear heart, your real mother. Come and meet her.' Janik roared in rage and got in his first attack swipe of the melee. Juggler crossed his swords in front to block him, but that left his flanks open for Fennel. The winded elf came around quickly and leapt to his feet. Sword bursting from its sheath, he pounced to where he was needed and slashed eagerly at Juggler's unprotected ribcage. The assassin sensed his intrusion at the last second and swung downward with the saw-toothed blade in his left hand, nicking Fennel's blade and sustaining only a trifling cut under his arm. He adjusted his fighting style to suit two challengers. His two blades flickered like fluttering leaves. Fennel and Janik would have to work efficiently together if there was to be any hope of defeating this crazed man, and neither of them could afford an injury. If one fell, the other would soon follow. "'I hear the South is pleasant this time of year,' Fennel said as brightly as he could between puffs of breath. He could not risk attempting eye contact with Janik for fear of losing it with Juggler. He could only hope that the dwarf would pick up on his hint. Crash! Clang! Juggler's weapons swung and darted, giving the impression of a swarm of wasps. Janik was taking a long time to think about what Fennel had said. Should he word it differently or just make his move? Of course, you and I are polar opposites, Janik said, just as Fennel was about to give up. Particularly now! Fennel took the returned hint and hopped on his nimble elven feet to get in behind Juggler, directly opposite, or south, of Janik. Juggler would have a more difficult time defending himself if they could stay as separate as possible. The assassin tried to shift outside their circle and found himself teetering on the brink of the drop-off. It shook his concentration, and Janik managed a solid blow with his battle-axe to Juggler's elbow. The sound of a light clink indicated the presence of armor underneath the assassin's jerkin, and though Juggler's arm seemed to vibrate momentarily with the jolt, the blade turned. Juggler swung round away from the precipice and forced the two friends to chase after him to regain their polar opposite positions. A cry could be heard from behind Janik, and Fennel cringed as he wondered what had happened. He could not afford a glance over Janik's shoulder. His left wrist had just been struck, and he clutched it to him. Juskelin learned quickly that Misty did not like to fight her opponents. She liked to torment them. Her dueling was like a folk dance, wherein the partners took turns performing fancy steps, each more complicated than the last. As the music rose to a fever pitch, so did the footwork and dips and turns become faster and more breathtaking, but all the while she smiled. After she so effortlessly deflected Giskelin's lightning bolt, he braced himself. He was not expecting to suddenly feel something or some things crawling up his bare legs under his Moabi robes. Hopping and shaking his legs and the brown cloth, he saw two scorpions drop onto the ground and scuttle away. The crawling sensation continued to climb upward beneath his robes. Jeskelin quickly drew the dispel illusions rod Val had given him and cast its spell. The sensation ceased. Sheathing the rod to save its final use, Jeskelin felt more puzzled than anything and looked at her as if she were mad. In answer, he used a simple slowing spell, but with a blink and a toss of her curly black head, it blew away. Misty set Giskelin's robes on fire, and for a moment he panicked. But quickly gathering his wits, he dismissed her illusion and pummeled her with flying fists. The first one caught her on the side of the head, but with a hand up, the next came back to clobber Giskelin in the chest. He threw up his own barrier, and the rest bounced away into the trees. She's going to block everything I throw at her. Jeskelin reasoned. 
He was hot from the physicality of the duel, but the internal heat of anger was working its way to the surface. This was not a real duel, and it made him hate her. Jeskelin, momentarily dismissing magic, raised his quarterstaff and dealt her a true blow to the side of the head. So engrossed was she in the amusement of spellcasting that she did not expect a tangible weapon. She staggered and nearly fell. As her eyes met his, he read both horror and terrifying rage. "'Fool!' she whispered. She raised her hand. Jeskelin summoned everything he could from his energy cell staff, but he was not quick enough to shield her blow. With the speed of an arrow she fired at him, he felt his body seize up as if he were wrapped in cobwebs, still able to hear and see his body was frozen solid, balancing on his bare feet, in danger of tipping over should someone bump him. Not content with just that, Misty hit him with blow after blow of her own flying fists. To the head, to the chest, to the gut— he did fall over, his head hitting the ground with an unavoidable crack. She kept them coming like hard kicks with her boot. She remained motionless, her hand extended toward him, only her finger adjusting the aim of each blow. Pain, sharp and intense, shot through him with each contact. Ribs cracked, an eye swelled, bruises purpled. He could do nothing, not shield himself, not cry out. He wished he could close his eyes. He was helpless and completely at her mercy. Kier felt warmth radiating from the guardian's encouraging smile. Her real mother? The clangs and cries of the battle were heard as if from underwater. Fear, lack of food, lack of sleep had all taken their toll. Her head whirled and bobbed as if she'd been on board a ship for days on end. Her brain felt fuzzy like wool. She smiled into his eager eyes, which only wanted an affirmative response before he would whisk her away to the blissful silence of his home, and she would meet her mother, the woman who had carried her and birthed her, named her, left me in a cornfield. Why had she done that? The question had plagued Kier since Della and Gareth had first told her the story of her arrival into their lives. Yet Kier had never given a moment's consideration to what might have become of her real mother after they had parted. Why would she be with him? The implications of her mother having left her in a cornfield to go be with this man passed across her thoughts like wisps of cloud. Would I be free to come and go? she asked, thinking of Kami's similar offer. Of course, if you really wanted to, he replied, as if he thought it strange that she would. But what about... She struggled to see what was going on behind the pillar that separated her and her guardian from the melee. They won't miss you, he assured her apologetically. They've carried on without you. He dismissed her former companions with a wave. Wouldn't you rather meet your true mother, learn everything about yourself? Come, live the life you were meant to live. I left Wrath to learn this, she thought. That was the point of it all. And unlike Kami, there were no strings attached. All else was forgotten. Kier gazed up into her guardian's kind, gentle face. Yes, I'll go with you. Kep did not fight like a gentleman. Derry preferred to, but was not captain to Valraker for being a gentleman. He was able to adjust his style to match any adversaries. The look on Kep's face altered swiftly from smugness to determination. Derry's blade swung and his feet danced, that skill being useful for pleasure and for business. 
Derry's own determination was fierce. Kep fought to defend himself and possibly his honour if he had nothing to do with stealing the antidote. Derry, on the other hand, battled not for his own life but for Alon's. Parry, slash, stab. Had he time to think about it, he would have recognised the release of all his emotions over the past few days, his unfair treatment of his friend, and her loss. Kep's determination changed to concern. His breaths came hard, and sweat coated his palms and ran down his face. Derry felt warm, but it did not impede his progress. Finally, with an upward sweep, he flung Kep's blade above shoulder height and thrust his bastard sword into the opening. Kep cried out as he went down. No time to wipe his blade, Derry spun around to see where he could help. Janik and Fennel were on the far side of the clearing with Juggler. Behind him, Derry could still hear Frederick and Hugh. Dear goddess, Jaskelin lay on the dirt ground near him, his black face swelling and puffing with invisible blows. His body lurched and shifted with each kick, and yet he was static, frozen. Misty was on her knees in front of him. Her hand was poised, pointing at Derry's friend, juddering with the spells that flew out of it. Derry instinctively did the only sensible thing. Weapon hurtling down, he cut off her hand. Misty screamed, the throaty, rasping sound like charcoal scraping rock touched nerves all around the clearing. She staggered to her feet, moving dangerously close to the drop-off, gaping at the stub of her arm as blood gushed from it like a hot spring. Raising her horrified expression, her mouth twisted in fury, she met Derry's gaze. Misty had another hand. She directed it at Derry, fingers stiff and outstretched, and sent a surge of power through the air. Derry dropped his sword to clutch at the unseen hand that constricted his throat. He tried to twist away, choking, gasping. He reeled, eyes bulging, begging for release. He dropped to his knees and knew he was about to die. The guardian looked as if he had just learned he was a father. An enormous smile of joy spilled across the tall man's countenance. He gripped Kier's hand. Just ahead, on the far side of the second pillar, a shimmering archway formed in the air in front of them. The archway itself was oddly familiar. Through it, a gust of chill, wintry air billowed, making her shiver, yet it incongruously carried a glorious medley of fragrance. Beyond the doorway, she caught a glimpse of her new home. A humble little castle, more a stately manor, of pale grey stone with towers topping two of its corners jutted up next to a small lily-dotted lake. The castle was surrounded by a voluminous flower garden, greenery and blooms of a million colours and varieties poured over the walls of the parapet. She now understood why her guardian always seemed to carry a multiplicity of scents with him. Her hand in his, he drew her toward the archway. "'I'm about to meet my mother!' Excitement billowed inside her. Wait, she stopped. Kia? I need Trig. Of course, her guardian replied. He smiled down at her with fathomless fondness, and she was bathed in warmth. Giving his hand a squeeze, begging his indulgence just this last time, she let it slip out of hers, the fingertips lingering contact sending a shiver of connection through her hands and up her arms. She turned back to fetch the animal who had been her companion for so many years. Transferring her sword to her left hand, she picked up the reins. I couldn't leave you, boy. She led him forward and turned back to her new companion, a smile just beginning to open on her lips. She stepped onto the threshold of the doorway. 
Something, a movement, a cry, a clang of steel, drew her awareness into the clearing. Just as her foot was about to step through the archway, she stopped. Something was wrong there. A castle and breathtakingly beautiful garden, sparkling in dewy morning sunshine, lay just on the other side of that doorway. Peace. But what was that? A scream? She took a step toward the sound. Kier! The guardian's voice held a note of a plea. No! Wait, she thought, but didn't speak aloud. She stepped out from behind the pillar. Two men fought just to the left. She caught a glimpse of more fighting far on the right, bodies strewn around, but she barely saw them. Not ten paces in front of her, at the edge of the clearing, nearly facing her directly, stood a woman. A tall woman with dark curls framing a familiar face. The woman who had put her hand on Kier's forehead after Frederick had spoken her language. That woman with her hand outstretched as if in the act of... Derry. Sword in both hands now, Kier rushed forward. That woman was killing Derry. No! she screamed. Kier rammed her sword straight through the black-haired assassin. Shocked, the woman let go of Derry and stared in terror at the monster that had flung itself at her. That was the only reaction she had time for. The jolt of the connection drove the dark-haired woman over the side of the precipice, and Kier, still grasping her sword, went with her. The guardian paused. A flash of disappointment crossed his features. As he watched Kier plow through the other woman and topple over the edge, he even felt a tiny jolt of anxiety. Wait, he told himself sternly. Just wait and see. He drew an object out of his cloak. It was flat, about the length of a woman's forearm, and wrapped in black cloth. He considered it and its many uses, and swiftly tucked it into one of Trigg's saddlebags. He passed through the archway and was gone. Now, you see, that was chapter 23, which I told you a couple of weeks ago was the original ending of the book. At least when I was writing the book, I was aiming for that scene. And you can see what I mean by get to the end of that scene and the story is not over. So I had to keep on writing. I feel like I should keep you posted on my progress with the final book. No spoilers, don't worry. I had a breakthrough last week and realized a mistake I was making where a character appeared at the wrong point in the book. So I've pulled that character out and I'm now going through and changing all the things that are affected by that. Then I have to add that character in the new location of the story. And actually, it's kind of cool because it means I can use some scenes I wrote years ago, which I had cut because they didn't work. So, yay! Um, I am hopeful that once I go through and smooth over these sections that are affected, I will be able to push through to the end smoothly. Kind of like the way Gatekeeper's Deception came together once I realized that this was not the final scene of the book. I am chugging away at it and getting closer. And I hope, I hope, I hope 
that you understand how important it is to me to get this right, to close all the gaps, to tie up all the loose ends and make it a supremely satisfying ending. Um, but I am conscious of the time in that I will be finished podcasting Gatekeeper's Deception in early June. And even if I finish writing the final book by then, it will still need editing and revisions. So, ah, pressure. I need to figure out what to do with the gap when I finish podcasting Gatekeeper's Deception and before I'm ready to podcast Gatekeeper's Revelation. Looking at podcasting Griffin and the Spurious Correlations, uh, possibly uh, doing some more chats with cool folk, possibly um, inviting some guests on to read from their books. Um, if you have any suggestions, fire them off to me. Thank you to my family, Matt, David and Heather and Maggie. Thanks, David and Sharon. Thanks to the original six. Thanks to you for listening. I also want to say a big thank you specifically to John and Heather and Paula and Edwin and Shari and David and Teresa. These are all listeners who've gotten in touch with me to comment on the story and tell me how mad they are at the characters and how they wish so-and-so had done such and such or to say that something was funny or that they picked up on that pop culture reference which is gratifying. Your reactions are, it's like, it's the next best thing to performing in front of a live audience. So thank you so much for taking the time to get in touch with me. I, it really means a lot to me. Oh, and I'm going to be a guest on a couple of different podcasts coming up. So stay tuned for details on those now. Go be fantastic. <laughs>